Welcome to Sundial. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Carlos Frias is out today. In Delray Beach, Yvonne Lee Odom isn't just known as tennis star Coco Golf's grandmother. She's known as Mrs. Odom, the veteran teacher who desegregated Palm Beach County schools as a student. A month before her granddaughter won the U.S. Open, Yvonne was given a back-to-school day proclamation by the Delray Beach City Commission. It honors her 45-year teaching career and role in the city's history. On the first day of school in 1961, Yvonne became the first black student to attend the all-white Seacrest High School, now Atlantic Community High. It was seven years after Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision that desegregated public schools. She was deemed an ideal candidate by school district officials, likely for some of the same reasons her granddaughter Coco has become a tennis star. They could push past adversity and stay focused on the prize. To talk to us about how she's celebrating her wins is Yvonne Lee Odom. Yvonne Lee Odom. Oh, hi there. <laughs> Miss Odom. Yes, I'm here. The studio is chilling, uh, huh? Yes, you yes. got that red scarf oh, around yes. your neck. Oh, yes. Got the, got the blue-green jacket. Oh, yes. <laughs> you, you didn't realize how cold the studio was going to be? That's all right. But I came prepared. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so good to see you. Nice seeing you again. Um, Thank you. Won't yes. he do it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Man. Yeah. I, you know, I never imagined I'd witness... Um, a congregation in Delray Beach cheering along to TV highlights yeah. of Coco Golf's comeback win uh, at the U.S. Open. And, and so I want to start this interview by playing a clip from the St. John Missionary Baptist Church in Boynton Beach. Let's hear it. You, you, you know, that video has over 600,000 views. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. My father would be proud. That's Coco Great Granddaddy. And that's yes. you in the background saying, oh, here, here she come. <laughs> that shot. See, I knew that shot was coming, and that's why I was so excited. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, St. John Missionary Baptist Church. The sermon about determination. Yes, yes. Um, that was a word. Yes. That was a word. Absolutely. And I had to remind myself that I was there for a story. <laughs> uh, were you surprised that the pastor played that particular highlight in the congregation? I was absolutely surprised, but it was Quinn, our videographer. It was who? I, the Quinn. His name is Quinn. That's oh. our videographer. Mm -hmm. But um, I was. It caught me off guard. I was already still on a high, but she grew up in that church and um so i'm not surprised surprised but i was pleasantly surprised to see and to share it with all those uh people who have watched her grow up and um before she was ever famous <laughs> you know singing in the choir and you know do, on the dance team and um so when people are there for you you know you want to share and that's what happened, and I was I was overjoyed. You know, it certainly surprised me um, yes, when I yes. pulled out my phone to record that video. I was like, "What is happening? Mm -hmm. Wait, is that Coco Golf on that big screen right now?" Yes, and yes. and it it 
encapsulated exactly what you just said mm-hmm. that this is a church that she grew up with mm-hmm. grew up in and this isn't just some random church um <laughs> your father reverend rm lee jr uh-huh. was a former classroom teacher himself yes uh and the longest serving pastor at that particular church right. how important is this church for you coco and the community well, first of all, he's not a junior. He's the senior. Oh, he's a senior. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> we have a Randolph Junior. He's deceased. That's my brother. But my dad in 1959 was called a pastor of that church. I was in eighth grade at the time. We came from Daytona. And I did not want to move from Daytona because back in those days, yes, it was segregated. But we had come from a town that had quite a bit for black folks, you know, we had our own pools and everything, so we didn't realize we were segregated. And then we moved to Boynton. And at that time in 59, there were four streets for black folks. And then the facilities that were there, black folks could not attend. So it was kind of traumatic for a family, but he came with six kids. My uh, stepmom was pregnant with uh, my um, brother. And then they later had a sister. So it was eight of us. And my dad pastored that church for 42 years. So that's literally where I grew up. 42 years. Yes. Wow. And, and and prior to that, I mean, he, he was a single father raising five kids at yes, that point, right? that's right. In Daytona, he uh, taught school at Campbell High, segregated Campbell High. He also passed the church out of Putma Hall, it was called, because he drove from Daytona to that church. Uh, he commuted. He commuted every single day. Yeah, com- uh, yes, from Putma Hall to his church, and then when he got called to St. John, it was in February, so he commuted from Daytona to Boynton, because we stayed in school. You know, he kept us in school until school was out, and we moved that summer. Yes. Wow. And and, and tell me about you know, the, the the type of influence that your father had in your life. Obviously, you became a classroom teacher yourself. Yes. Um, were you inspired by your father? Not really. You know, I don't know. I just know my dad was always there. He was my dad. You know, everybody, oh, you Reverend Lee daughter. But he was just our dad. And for a long time, we were just my dad and five children because my mom was institutionalized, um, which they didn't talk about it then. That's one of my platforms, mental health. So she was in an institution, and um, then he married my stepmom when I was in sixth grade. So from the time we were like, I don't even remember my mom, so that's what I'm saying. So it was just my dad and the five of us. And so when we moved, that was just normal. You know, we used to travel from Daytona to Fort Lauderdale because my granddaddy passed at Mount Olive. In Fort Lauderdale, the uh, Baptist church there. So as kids, we would we traveled, and it was our normal. You know how that is. P- other people think it's unusual, but that was our normal. Right. And and I want to go back to that church really quickly, mm-hmm. uh, just to uh, illuminate just how massive your family is. You're known as Coco Golf's grandmother. But now I am. You, now you are, right? <laughs> you have you had I, such a huge history. I but- used to be Miss Odom in my own right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. I'll take it. <laughs> and, and so how many grandchildren do you have? I have uh, three children, seven grandchildren, and I have three great-grands, but one of my grand, uh, my grandson passed away. 
So that's it. We we are a unique family. Yeah, my, my yeah. condolences on that. Yeah. Um and, and so your your father obviously has a huge legacy mm-hmm. and that legacy has passed down. Uh, and what has passed down obviously is family values, grit, um, the sermon of that day was determination. Right. We are determined. You just heard yeah. the audience, yeah. the whole entire congregation yeah. singing at the same time. Uh, and, and so can you describe his impact on Coco's life, on your, your daughter's life? Like, Well, not even knowing, because, of course, Coco does not remember her uh, grand, great-granddaddy. But my grandfather married her mom and dad. <laughs> and that was his last wedding ceremony he did. So I've always talked about him. Everybody talks about him. His picture hangs in, you know, the fellowship hall that's named for him. So we just treat it as a normal thing. And I don't think she realized, you know, because as more people want to know about Coco, then they know about her generation. So I think that's what it is. It's almost like me when people ask me about my dad. He was just my dad. But other people in the community will always say, well, Reverend Lee did this for me and Reverend Lee did that for me. And uh, and I think that's how I wanted to live my life because I was one of those kids who I never wanted to disappoint my dad because the older I got, I realized what sacrifices he had to make in order to keep us five together. And to me, that was so important that he didn't separate us and he had the opportunity but he said, no, all of my kids are going to grow up together. And because of that, I think that's what gave me inspiration to make sure I never disappointed him. You know, um, when I went to your church for the first time and you started showing me around, there's that beautiful portrait of your father. Yes. That you and Brenda Lee yes. Williams, your sister, yes. who is in the studio. She's in the back right yeah. now. And uh, and I just see how your face lights up every oh, time yeah. you talk about your father. Oh, yeah. How does it make you feel when you know that this man who raised you and your siblings as mm-hmm. a single father, how does it make you feel when you hear other people talk about what he has done for the community? It just validated what he did because he was not one of them ones that preached one thing in the sermon uh, on the pulpit and a different at home. Uh, he, he That's just how he was. And I think that was from his father and mother, you know, uh, and I think that's what we, we do a disservice to our children when we don't teach family values. And I'm, I'm studying a book in the Bible, and I got to be as grown as I am before I became a Bible study. But my sister was reminding me about the, we are talking about Samuel, and he never disciplined his children. And they, they didn't live long lives, and they became horrible men. You know, so if we, that's why it's important to study, you know, and see so you don't make those same mistakes. And so I think because of his background with his dad and mom, because that's what we grew up with our granddaddy, grandmama, that that's how he did. Because he was not a yeller. He was not a screamer. He didn't spank. I think I got one little spanking on the legs that probably hurt him more than me. But he was not that type. So it was just our normal. And so I tried to do the same thing with my kids. And even with Coco, following her all these years, because that's my daughter's child, so that means she's very close to me. And when they just made the decision to homeschool her and, uh, you know, give the opportunity, I was opposed to it at first. 
And my husband reminded me, okay, Bonnie, that's my nickname. That's not your child. So then I simply became a supportive role. Whatever my daughter and son-in-law wanted me to do, that's what I did. And and, and yes. it seems like Coco admires that support. She <laughs> she she has been quite public about it. Yeah, um, I appreciate that yeah. because it wasn't always that way. Because you know, as a parent, I tell parents this: you don't know always what you say is sticking with a child, but you have to do it um, without harshness. But if you do the right thing and they see you doing the right thing, it'll stick. You know, you might not know it then, but it's the same thing with my dad. You mm-hmm. know, as you grow older, you begin to understand, you know, they were right. Yeah. And, 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 and Golf herself, like I said, mentioned you as a role model for her, uh, a source of inspiration. You you sent her a text message after her U.S. Open win, right? Yeah. What, what did you write her? Well, I have to look back, but usually what I usually say, a good match, and I always tell her to stay positive, and I love you. <laughs> because I've always said, you know, God does not always let you win, but as long as you're doing your best, it's okay. And I always I'll remind her to keep working because I just remember how devastated she was in the French Open, and she cried. And I just remind her, you know, sometimes God knew you just wasn't ready yet for the title. And when you're ready, it's going to come because that's that's how it is. And sometimes we get so caught up and we put kids on a pedestal because my dad didn't do that to us as a preacher's kid. He didn't put us on a pedestal. He reminded the congregation that we're going to be just like your kids. We're going to go where your kids go. And I took that, you know, and I think that's that's what happened. And that's what I tried to remind Coco of. And it is um, constant reminder when you're raising children because there's too many outside influences. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm and hoping she I, I'm I'm gratified that she's listening. And for folks who don't know the difference, the French Open is a separate championships. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, last that she, year. That, well, that people who know her year, knew she, she won a U.S. Open this she year. She lost to Switek mm-hmm. and cried, you know, during her presentations. But I, it's OK. <laughs> I, I want to play a clip of what Coco had to say about your influence in her life. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think for her to go through what she did during that time is something that I think what I do, putting out a tweet or saying a speech, is so easy compared to that. So that's why I have no problem doing the things that I do. And she's the always reminds me that I'm a person first, but instead of an athlete. How does that make you feel? When oh my gosh! And and that's right. I've I've told her that you know because I've all because we had this discussion one time about. She said, "Well, gee, my, I think people treat you differently when you're rich and you got a lot of money." And I told her, I said, Coco, listen, no, 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 that's not true. I said, usually when people are rich, they don't treat you differently. People around you sometimes don't have the courage to tell you the truth, and so therefore they go on. So don't ever think you're any better or any worse than somebody who has money is not. Because in God's sight, we all equal, you know. It's okay to have money, but don't think you're any better or any worse. Our guest today is Yvonne Lee Odom. She's had a 45-year teaching career in Delray Beach, desegregated Palm Beach County schools as a 15-year-old high school sophomore. She's tennis star Coco Golf's grandmother. Oh, and someone who probably holds the record as the best belly laugh I've ever heard. I love the way you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. I love your laughter. <laughs> it always brings me home, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> Ever since I first I met you. I didn't realize that. <laughs> See, we That's all learned. That's a new uh, description of me, huh? <laughs> you, pass, you know, you pass down wisdom. It's only right that I share stuff about you. Okay, you know? okay. Now, now, of course, prior to church, um, I met you at the Delray Beach City Commission mm-hmm. meeting in August as officials honored you for your 45 years, mm-hmm. Yvonne, mm-hmm. 45 years of teaching and for your role in desegregated public schools. And all in, in Delray, I might add. All in Delray <laughs> Beach in Palm Beach County. Yes. And so you des- desegregated public schools in, in, in 1961 in Delray Beach. It's 2023. Mm-hmm. Did you ever imagine the city would give this type of support years later? Oh, absolutely not. But I, a young man named Sam Adams, I find, I've come to find out, um, who I, th- I call it harassing. He's a writer. And I guess when he found out that I did do it, because I never talked about it, he wrote letters <laughs> to the, all the commissioners. I think they say, well, let me just do something. I don't know. But they did. And, I, you know, I appreciate it. You know, I say thank you. <laughs> um, I was born in 1983. Mm. I want to go back or well, let's discuss 1961. Mm. I don't want to go back. Right. I don't want to go to 61. Right. Um, the local newspaper headline uh, at the time said, quote, Negro student integrated quietly at Seacrest High. Right. That was the headline. Uh, you were one of the top student athletes at the all black Carver High School. Mm-hmm. And then your father, who we spoke to, uh, spoke about a lot in the first segment um, and the school district of Palm Beach County selected you to become the first black student at the all white Seacrest mm-hmm. High School. Uh, what was it about you that stood out that made them comfortable with selecting you? You really want me to answer that? Oh, like absolutely. I know. <laughs> no idea except that what I've been told because remember I was just a 15 year old student uh, yes I started as a freshman uh, basketball on coach uh, Pompey's team uh, I was a pretty good student you know and what it was I have no idea but it was not the school district but there was a group of black citizens who wanted to try to select kids that would be successful that's what I was told. And they approached my father uh, to see if um, I could be used. Nobody asked me anything. <laughs> they asked him, and I came home from a football game one uh, day, and he just simply nonchalantly said, well, Bonnie, I filled out some papers for you to go to Seacrest. And I was like, you did what? So, Because at the time, they had freedom of choice. And no black kids were choosing to go to white schools and vice versa. So they had to actively recruit different ones. They had somebody from West Palm, I think Lake, my good friend Teresa Jakes and uh, Green, Donnie Green, I think it was the name. They integrated Lake Worth High. And I was chosen to uh, go to Seacrest. Right. And you said you mentioned Bonnie. Bonnie is what your family that's calls my, you. Yeah, that's, that's my nickname. Because nickname. if people call me Bonnie, I know they knew me when I was a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> and so and just to give everyone a little bit of context around that time, um, William Holland uh, Sr. 
of West Palm Beach, um, who was the county's first black American attorney, had filed a lawsuit in 1956. Yeah, some years prior. Exactly. Right, there you go. When, when the all-white uh, Northboro Elementary School refused to enroll his six-year-old son. There you go. Um, and, and, you know, his fight eventually forced the county to comply with the Supreme Court's landmark legislation, uh, obviously several years later. Yes. So Palm Beach County was yes. a bit late on it. Um, now, was your was your father afraid? <laughs> That I can't answer, but he never appeared to be afraid. Now, I was told later that he had his own private conversation with the principal to let him know I was sending my daughter here and I expected you to safeguard her because we met in the principal's office because our letter that we received from the school district indicated that I should come mid-morning. They did not want me to come when school first started because, you know, the kids, I guess they thought something would happen. So we met with the principal that day, my father and I, Mr. Bob Fulton. Mr. Bob Fulton. <laughs> yeah, Robert was his name, but they called him Bob Fulton. Yes, Bob Fulton. He, and he was a really nice man. And I'm glad you yeah. mentioned his name because yeah. the uh, school district of Palm Beach County, the namesake is yeah. Fulton and Holland. That's William right. Holland, How ironic attorney. is that? Yep, they, they, uh, and so I love Fulton to Holland. share that because when adults have the right intentions, Things can happen for the good. Absolutely. Yes. And, and so, all right, so you don't know if your father was afraid. I, I assume he was a very stoic man, yes. right? He's a pastor, yes. teacher, you know, he's yes. a father. And so, he never showed a lot of emotions he, either, yeah. Mm-hmm. But don't don't get his time wrong. Now, I know because he'll stand up for what's right, but it's, it's like he never showed that, you know, violence or anything around us. Now, what he did <laughs> privately, I don't know, but as a child— that was just never shown as, to him. As a leader, he just he yeah. just led in that way. He, and everybody who's ever spoken about him, even his former students at Camel High, because he was such a neat dresser, they called him cool, and then they saw Mr. Lee was popular. Mr. Lee, Mr. Lee, oh, Mr. Lee. <laughs> so that was popular when he was in high school. So the kids, uh, they just admired him because he was always neatly dressed and mm. And, everything and, and so that how you describe his personality traits did some of that rub off on you were you afraid on I was not you know everybody asked me that at the time and I used the phrase that I had what I needed when I stepped on that campus now I didn't analyze that at the time but I was fear was not what I experienced I didn't I was not afraid because my task was to go to school and that's the way I you know took it and then I saw those kids as other kids because I, people often ask me, well, how did I look? And see, I couldn't see myself unless I looked at a picture that I was different because my skin t- tone. But as far as me walking with white kids, because I was always comfortable around people anyway, that's my personality. And when I integrated, I decided I was gonna integrate. So I went everything. I went to all the activities and I wouldn't allow those few little name calls that I got, nigga. So, you know, that was our favorite nickname back in the day. Not my favorite, but that's what we were called. But you know, you, you can't allow somebody to call you something. Well, um, and then you can, react. can you can you can you describe that the instance when that was hurled at you? Well, it was three. Two, I recall vividly. The third, I don't remember, but I was walking down that long, it was a long um, 
sidewalk from the school to the road because my a high school homeroom teacher was the one who drove me to school. They didn't want me to ride the bus. And there was a bus going by, and I could hear it coming from the bus. It was a guy. I knew it was a guy. And he just said, nigga. That's all I heard. heard. I didn't know what else he said, but I heard nigga. And then once I was in the gym, and I was walking across the gym, and there was a group of boys over there by the locker room, and I heard just that word. I didn't hear anything else, but I could hear the word nigga. And then the third time, I don't even remember when it was. But other than those incidents, even though I just wasn't conscious of it, I don't know if I blocked it out, but there were no physical stuff or something that was blatant because I put it on our principal at the time because I found out later he called a meeting of the students to make sure they knew I was coming. And what was his expectation of them, to how they would treat me. Hmm. So that's, I found all that out later. And so initially they didn't want me to do PE. They didn't, cause they didn't want me in the locker room. They wouldn't let me dri- uh, ride the school bus, which I was entitled to. Uh, and and so, so let's stick to those two points right uh-huh. there. So you said initially they didn't right. want you to do P. So you eventually were oh, able yeah. to. Oh, yeah. I went to the P, the T, because you know I'm an athlete. And I told her, my counselor, I said, look, at Carver, I didn't have a study hall because they gave me a study hall when I should have had a PE class. So the semester, they couldn't put me in the first semester. So the second semester, I was put in a PE class. And then that's when I flourished. <laughs> <laughs> we played basketball in the mules and I ran track over there and nobody ever beat me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now yes, I, I, yes. I went to public schools yes. uh, in Palm Beach County. I went uh-huh. to Forest Hill High School right, okay. and I took the public bus. Yeah. And as a kid, I remember how rowdy buses buses can get. Right. And it was a multiracial high school. Right. So um, it, why do you think they wouldn't allow you to ride the bus? And... Um, how were you able to get to school every day? Okay, I believe they did it out of precaution because the the adults perhaps thought somebody would attack me based on what had prior to other integrating, you know, areas. And my high school teacher, Mr. Ben Kane, who was my homeroom teacher, in the black schools, what we did, a, a, a teacher would start with you in ninth grade and then they will follow you to 12th grade. So they were, they were our homeroom teachers. So he, because he taught at Carver, he passed by Seacrest to get to Carver. So he would come and drop me off. Now, when I turned 16, here it is my sophomore year, I'm 15. In May, I turned 16. My dad bought me a car for $75. So I drove to school after that. So I never rode the bus after that, but I felt so empowered. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had my own car. You were driving with I drove my one, own car. One arm on the steering oh, wheel. Oh, child. I, and I could fit in with all the other white folks who drove their cars. Mm. <laughs> so that, you know, I, that gave me a lot of empowerment. I didn't realize I was a big deal, but it was just so thrilling for me. Now, thinking of you 16, you got your driver's license, and then your dad go buy you a car. And I drove to school. So not only yes. are you having to reconcile with certain insults that were hurled at you, uh-huh. but you also had to reconcile with class differences, yeah. your skin, um, yeah. you know, 
being this sort of barrier to to access to comfortable spaces mm -hmm. and you managed to remain determined and yeah. to some extent be competitive right it sounds oh, like you absolutely. had a competitive spirit about you at that and point. you know and that's why as a teacher i tried my best to instill that in every kid no matter where they were from because the haitian kids started coming over when i was a teacher and that was important to me uh kids who were um considered uh the thugs i guess because that's who i taught and i always tease people i'm married to a thug so i know how to <laughs> but that that's an affectionate one that's my high school sweetheart we've been going together since we were in high school and so i just felt that i needed to empower adults because one thing i always felt i used to tell them look i'm working to take care of my dad's social security i need you working to pay mine so it was me as a teacher needing to empower kids to be independent. A lot of my community work now is on that. I'm president of Delray BCDC, where we try to empower young people to buy houses instead of renting all the time. And everybody know how I feel renting, and I, I don't want to be no prude, I, you know, because my husband and I have a couple of properties that we rent too. But if you can buy your house, <laughs> then we try to help you to buy a house. Cause that's important. Yeah. So yeah. So so your old your entire mission is is uplifting the community in every way possible. Absolutely. After your experience, that's and, important for America. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And, and did you? I want to go back to to the time period of you actually integrating this particular school. Mm -hmm. um, did you feel like you were making a sacrifice uh, in going to this white school? What What did you gain, and what did you may have missed out? Well because everybody was like my cheerleaders because I initially did not want to do this. But the next day that I went, because it was a Thursday, I believe I found out, and the next day I went to school, everybody must have found out about it because the teachers, all the kids were saying, yes, you should do it, you would be good. And when I found out later with what Jackie Robinson went through, they needed somebody like a Jackie Robinson because I remember Jackie Robinson was not necessarily the best black ball player, but they felt he would be the one that would succeed because he had insults you wouldn't believe. So that's what I was told they were looking at me, that I could go over there and be successful. They didn't want to send somebody over there to fail, you know, because now people will say, uh-huh, see there, I told you so. So that's that's what I've come to the conclusion and what other people saw in me because, you know, how I've carried myself in school and, you know, the community. Because prior to that, in eighth grade, I won Miss Teen Town. Okay, doing excuse Doing the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> My uh, friend, Carol Sims, who, who passed on, she had contests for all of us. And I uh, entered it, <laughs> and I won. So you, I was you, on the float. You were always gifted yes, at, 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 speaking. at different things yes, and speaking and whatnot. Yes, yes. And so I want to, I want to get to all of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, but first. Our guest today is Yvonne Lee Odom, a civil rights trailblazer and retired classroom teacher from Delray Beach. <laughs> Yvonne, we have had a conversation so far. Yes, yes, <laughs> we have. Um, and so let's let's so we've already discussed your impact on history, on American history. Um, now, teaching black history uh, in the state of Florida has been sort of like a political football these days. Um, so I want to touch on that a little bit. 
Uh, the last time I spoke with Coco Golf, she said she was planning on launching a foundation that would help aspiring athletes. Uh, since you're now receiving this renewed interest around your story, are you working on anything right now? Have you felt inspired by the uh, the, the renewed interest in your history? Well, he, I'm with the community group, and I go back to what is called Faith in Florida. And what they have decided to do, because those of you who know our governor know all, all of that, so I don't have to rehash that, but they have decided to uh, reach out to the, all the black churches. Because you know the history of churches, they have always been involved and have asked all black churches to include a part of their Sunday school lesson some form of black history. So I think that's it. I don't need to reinvent the wheel, but what I've t said to everybody, history is extremely important, and we cannot let anyone, no one, stop us from doing it. Because I remember my dad years ago, uh, he was talking about the Jewish community and how he was saying the Jewish people, you know you're a Jew when you're in your mama's belly. That's how he put it. And they always... Um, taught their history so we need to do the same thing but going back to me coming up as a race we were never led to believe to be proud of who we are you know when you think about it we, they, we didn't even know what to call ourselves negro nigger uh black you know when people call you black that was fighting you know somebody would fight you if you were called black so because of how we got here in the first place I think it's been a lesson learned. But now that we go back and look back, I think that's what we need to tell it. Because even in the integration, a lot of black people felt white schools were better. Now, sometimes you thought that. But see, when I went to Seacrest, I found out, look, the school district didn't treat that school any better or any worse. And Seacrest was the all-white school. All-white school. Carver was the all-black school. There you go. So I saw it. And that, those three years that I spent over there, I learned so much. And it's not always about the facility. It's about the teachers. And our black teachers at the time insisted on certain things we did because they knew how we were going to be treated. And now these kids have got... They done found everybody ugly ways, you know, and that's not a good thing. And I think black America, and I'm speaking to parents, you need to go back and see how people of my age and generation were trained and how we had to be a certain caliber. And, and it wasn't like you were be any better, any worse, but because of our skin tone and how America treated us, we had to be better. Now, now we yeah. explored what you had to go through as a student. Yes. And let's segue to your time as a teacher. Yes. Uh, who happened to be black. Yeah. Did you come across teaching black history during your time as a classroom educator in Delray well, Beach? Absolutely. I remember the very first year I taught, my first year, I'm right out of college, 22 years old, at Delray Elementary. I had a white student at the time. And when open house came that night, the kid was dragging the mama down, so I want you to meet my teacher. And the lady face turned, dressed as red, and I knew something was wrong. And the very next day, she took my her kid out of my class. And as a young teacher, I, it hurt my feelings. It really did. And my AP told me, well, Yvonne, that's her loss. So when I taught 
I always taught like it was a normal thing, you know. And I remember, you know, with Black History, my daughter, when she taught it, she was in all-white school. And she told her, we're not doing um, Jackson, uh, the, the singer, mm-hmm. and they had to be dead or over 50. Because <laughs> everybody knew Michael Jackson. Right. You know, and so she didn't want these white kids to just bring Michael Jackson. So... We try to, you know, treat it as a normal thing. That's very Not fascinating. Just, yeah. I, I want to go back to that experience yeah. really quickly. Um, you know, as a black teacher and seeing a parent, a white parent in this mm-hmm. case, pull their student out of your history class. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was my classroom. I was, was fourth grade. Fourth so you're grade. teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, let, let's say, well, actually, let's segue here. Uh-huh. Um, even all these years after Brown versus Board of Education, right. schools in the U.S. remain segregated and uh, still are and still are by race and class yeah why mrs odom why why do you think this is i truly believe because that those three years i spent at seacrest people don't know people we still in this society judge somebody by their skin you know martin luther king said it but it still have not reached it now in my lifetime i never thought that i would live to see a black president and I did. But I often tell people I would never have voted for him if I didn't think he was qualified. And I think that's the stigma that black people are not qualified to do certain things. But if given the opportunity, it's okay. That's even like, you know, when you had the, um, you know, get people in, in the schools because you favored them to go. What was that called when you... Uh, the schools let black kids come in. Uh, affirmative action. Oh, affirmative That's action. affirmative oh, the, action. Oh, the, affirm, uh, the policy. Okay, and my thing is, okay, you di- discriminated all these years. Why not give them a heads up? Because we're the only race to me, and somebody else could tell me if they've been discriminated like that. But we are the only race that America has done us like that. And that's why the more I think about it, reparations is what I think America owes us. They owe us because of how we were treated. And you actually went through that experience yourself. So so your viewpoint will lean towards that. Absolutely. And and I want to stay on a local scene here. Yes. What could be done um, to make schools more integrated, more diverse? We have to toot our own home. We have to always strive for excellence uh, because people don't know it. And I'll go back to a little simple. My husband started a little league program in Delray when it was segregated, 1971 which they said it wasn't going to last. They accused of crack houses all around, and, and they, it just wasn't. When white people don't come in your neighborhood and see who you are, we are lumped into a saying that we are all the same and we are all criminals, and I think we're the only race that take on the ills of the worst of us. You see what I mean? There's no other race. If somebody see a black man murder somebody, the next black man they see, they're going to think, oh, that's a murderer. I watched my son and my husband go through um, where we lived uh, because it was all white neighborhood. We just built a house there because when we initially wanted to buy a lot there, they wouldn't sell us the lot because it was segregated. So my thing is get to know somebody. Because you have criminals <laughs> at right. every race. And that's what I learned those three years I was there with the white people at Seacrest. And, and, and so 
you, you made two really salient points mm-hmm. about the multi-ethnic black community not right. being a monolithic. Right. And the other part you just made is about, again, policy, how policy dictates um, how people move in different spaces. Um, you obviously grew up in segregation. You're, you're known for desegregating public schools in Delray Beach. Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing. That's a huge thing. Now, um, and you also mentioned reparations. What would reparations look like to you to, to fix some of these issues? Um, and and yeah. let me let me expand more on that yeah. question. You've had you have policies like redlining, for example, mm-hmm. as well that also contributes to some of the discrepancies in our society. Uh, what would reparations look like for you? I can't even define it, but just like you had different policies to segregate, why not do it to integrate? Uh, I don't even know what it would take to make up for the ills of the past. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad because you know the governor, that's his thing. But what we have to do is recognize that perhaps the lot that my husband and I had bought finally would not have cost us as much money if we had were able to buy it five years sooner. You know, there are things that I don't know. I'll let the experts do that. I just know initially I didn't feel that way like anybody else. You know, you work hard, you're going to do things right. But the more you're into it and you recognize how you were discriminated against, I think some kind of way America needs to, um, not apology because I'm I'm not one of these that apologize because I used to tell my students, don't apologize to me. I just want you to do different. If you step on my toe, you can apologize. But because you've done something wrong, just do differently. And America got to recognize that they've done something wrong. How that looks like, I can't even tell you. As you were describing that, um, you said very, in a very subtle way, I don't want anyone to feel bad. Do you think teaching black history, there's a sphere that it would make people feel bad? For example, That was Governor DeSantis. That was his, not me. That was his... uh, Thing. You know, that's what's the, the, his the reason. Act right, the subtext yeah, behind it. Yeah, because he didn't he didn't think the children of today should feel bad right. of what their ancestors did. That was him, not me. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, not you. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, um, why do you think that fear exists? Um, unknown fear of the unknown. You just think about your history of being a Haitian American. How when people didn't know who you were. Even though you look just like me, people, you know, people do that. We judge people not by the content of the character, but the color of their skin or their background. And we just got to stop doing that. Hmm. We really do. But it may not be in my lifetime, but I think it's something we should all strive for. Now, again, you're not just known as someone who desegregated schools. Mm -hmm. You were a teacher for 45 years, Mrs. Oden. Very proud of that. Um, The state has 7,000 teacher vacancies right now. Um, Why do you think people are less interested in becoming teachers now than when you started teaching at a time when it was quite difficult (laughs) for teachers? You know what I think it is? We do not value that profession. And I go back to my daddy years ago. My daddy said something to me. He said, you teachers let anybody else tell you what to do. He said, you're the only profession that let other people tell you what to do. He goes, you don't go in a courtroom telling a judge how to handle. You don't go to a, a surgeon and tell a surgeon how to operate. 
But he said, you teach, y'all let anybody come in and tell you how to handle your profession. And as I look back, I was a very strong union person, but teachers have a certain quality about them. And so I think we think everybody going to treat us fairly instead of us getting in the union and demanding what we fought for and our rights and people are now leading because they, the society does not value teachers. But then when you look at it, sometimes teachers don't value themselves because they don't demand anything, you know? And it, that's just how I look back over it. And my thing to young teachers would be get involved in your union. Elect people who are going to listen to you or you run yourself because that's what's happened. Politics runs the country. And if you don't get involved, that means my voting, registering, and you elect people who are going to say what you want. That's what's happening now. We got politics and too many people don't get involved. Too many, as teachers especially, because that governor we got now, if teachers had voted, we would have a different governor. Let, let, let's go back to, to history, bring it all back uh -huh. um, to, to, to your history. Mm -hmm. uh, you desegregated public schools in Delray Beach uh, six or seven months after Ruby Bridges did it in Louisiana. Yes, yes, right? yes. Um, and now the story of Ruby Bridges was challenged in the school in St. Pete. Uh, what do you think of a story being considered inappropriate for elementary schoolers? That's a hard one because who determines what's inappropriate? You see what I'm saying? People got to understand you have to tell your own story and stop allowing other people to tell your story. Ruby Bridges' story is something that should be told. It doesn't mean you're going to repeat that, but you could. Then just give them her, the applause. It's like Jackie Robinson. It's even Babe Ruth, you know. It's okay. I look at my Miami Dolphins, the 1972 team that went undefeated. My husband and I, we were young, you know. That's the team we follow. What, do we want to bury that history? No. History is important. But remember, it's his story. That's how the word come out. And it's Ruby Bridges and those people who knew that and they are the ones who have to share it. It's just like you. You're deciding that this story is important enough, and perhaps because I'm Coco's grandmother, <laughs> that now let's see how this works. You have to tell the stories because it's important for the future generations. And, and, and for people who don't know, Ruby Bridges desegregated schools in Louisiana. And she schools. got a lot of flack. And what I found out, because I read a little more, Every kid withdrew from that school. She was the only student. And there was a courageous teacher who decided, I'm going to teach this one student. Because all the teachers left and all the kids. So you read it. Read it for yourself. Yeah. Yvonne Lee Odom, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your long story. Uh, I mean, you have such a historical mark in Delray Beach and Palm Beach County, 45 years of teaching desegregated public schools. Thank you so much for sharing your story with and us. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. And that's Sundial for Monday, September 25th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. 
Peter J. Merritt is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's Engineer. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Paolo at gopaolo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up on tomorrow's program, Carlos Frias is back. My guy. He'll be speaking with the city of Coconut Creek's first poet laureate. I'm Wilkin Brutus. And remember, stay hydrated. WLRN Public Media.